Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 170th episode of the Atlas Society Asked. My name is Lawrence Levo. I'm an associate editor here at the Atlas Society, the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways through our Atlas University seminars, our graphic novels, and our creative social media content. Today, I am joined by our senior scholar, Dr. Richard Salzman, and senior fellow, Robert Chizinski, who will be discussing three uh, major topics today. The first, doing a recap of events surrounding sort of the 9-11 memorial last week. We will have a discussion about China's current downward spiral in regards to their economy. And then at the end, we will also discuss the BRICS alliance and what that means for the United States. As always, I encourage you all to please send in your questions. We'll try to get to many of them as we can. You can bring them in on YouTube, Facebook, Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Please put your questions in the comments. We'll try to get to as many as we can at the end. But to start things off, I'm going to pass things over to Richard. Please. Thank you, Lawrence. Uh uh, Rob and I were kind of chatting about this offline, and uh, we're not going to spend much time on it, but uh, I'll tell you the origins of it. It is it is comment about 9-11, and I think everyone or most people in this audience know the import of that date, that event, the philosophic aspects behind it. What I noted and uh, what Rob and I could chat here briefly about before we turn to China is I'm a bit troubled by the trend I've seen in recent years, but I Looking into it, I saw that in 2015, it was kind of formalized under Obama, that 9-11 has been turned into a day of service. And we all know that on that day of the, of the various conclusions one could have drawn from that day, not, not just the terrorism implicit in uh, Islam uh, or in really any kind of religion that takes itself seriously, it was a, is a tremendous focus, as you know, on the first responders, on the uh, victims, uh, not only those in the building, but those running into the building and trying to save. And to this day, there still has been that. And there's, you know, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with that. I just think that the emphasis, especially when you memorialize or, or commemorate something, you know, for good or ill, some great date in history or some a uh, bad date in history, you know, whether it's July 4th or whether it's December 7th, you know, Pearl Harbor with FDR said as a day that will live in infamy. I, I think 9-11 is just being turned into something that, you know, it's supposed to be a reminder that we should sacrifice ourselves. We, we too should emulate the uh, uh, hmm. alleged self-sacrificing activity of firemen and, and others. And, and the focus really should be on what caused it. And to this day, you know, whether we still uh, have reason to worry about the vicious, uh, you know, stuff that can come from taking religion seriously. I, I understand why American people don't want to go there to the extent they're religious, but I'll leave it at that. I know uh, Rob, you know, walked me down off the ledge a little bit on this. And <laughs> I, you said at one point it was a kind of a bitter, maybe it is, but I, so tell me where I'm wrong, Rob. I, I just don't... Uh, well, I don't think you're entirely wrong. And, and to put a little bit of a harder edge on it, I mean, you know, you know who else also believed in the sacrifice, uh, the the hijackers. So, oh, right, right. 
Like, these were these were engineers. They were they were they were educated guys. They were right. they were, they were prosperous. They weren't you know out of they weren't out of work guys from the slums of of uh, of Pakistan. You know they they were they were uh, they were prosperous guys. These are the elite in a way of their societies. And didn't and didn't someone say at the time, Rob? Someone said they're really courageous. You know they had the courage of their convictions. And oh my God! Well, yes. there was somebody got in trouble saying you have to hand it to Osama bin Laden. I think, but. Uh, and then they had, to, they had to retract that. Um, no, but the other thing about it, the reason why I'm, I'm less upset about it is I think there was not much commemoration of the anniversary at all this year. And, and that's partly because, you know, it's it, it, we're out at 22 years. It's not a round number. You tend to celebrate or commemorate, I should say not celebrate, but commemorate the round numbers uh, on, on big events like this. Um, but the other reason is that Americans, the default option is just to not pay any attention whatsoever to anything having to do with foreign policy. Yes. And that's yes. one of the reasons yes. I think that went sort of one of the things that went wrong with the war on terror is it had, you know, the reason we all look back at World War II as a great era of national unity is it lasted less than four years. Right. Yes. From the right. 1941, right. 1945, it was all over. Right. And uh, the American public has an ability to really focus like a laser and regard what's going on over the in, out in the rest of the world as very important when there's a big emergency, a big disaster, and they can do it for about four years, and then that's it, they're done. So that's sort of the problem we're up against. That that the story I like to tell is from it's from one of the like, the Dashiell Hammett novels with his. Uh, the, the sort of hard-boiled detective Sam Spade. He tells us Sam Spade tells this story about how he was hired once to find a man who who had disappeared suddenly and, and gone off. And his wife hires him to lead years later to track him down. And he finds the guy and he finds out the story. So this guy was walking down the street when a, a beam falls down from a construction site, lands right next to him. You know, his life flashes before his eyes. He questions everything about his life, decides to totally upend his life, disappears, goes on a series of adventures. But by the time Sam Spade finds him, he's settled down in a different town. He's married to a woman who's exactly like the one he left behind. He's got a, a job, the exact same kind of job he was in before. And as Spade, being the harp and detective he is, kind of cynically concludes, a, a beam had almost dropped on his head and he changed his whole life. But then beam stopped falling on him <laughs> and he went back to the life as he was yeah. exactly before. And I think that's sort of you know, the, the 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 calls for national service are sort of the default we're going back to of the way things were, you know, our, our normal default. And, you know, uh, there's been no big terrorist attack in a while. Beams stopped falling from the sky on our heads. And so um, we're going to yeah, go yeah. back to what we're doing before. Yeah. I guess, I guess somebody else said to me, uh, well, Richard, we don't uh, commemorate uh, December 7th, 1940. No one stands up and says, you know, remember fascism. Remember Japan imperialism. Uh, yeah, remember, an, uh, you know, an undefended borders. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, actually, remember the that's true. That's true. That's true. I guess. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm, maybe I'm asking too much from our uh, memorials or our commemorations. Uh, but Obama did officially. I did learn that in 2015, Obama did officially. I don't know from the. I don't know how you do this executive yeah. but from the White House designated it a national day of service. I mean, that wasn't necessary, but uh, just to confirm my point, but I hear you. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I think it's like, with, it's like with D-Day. You had another anniversary of D-Day not so long ago. And yeah. you know, yeah. unless the number with the zero at the end as the anniversary, it's not as as big a deal. Okay. All right. Tell me what, tell me what you're thinking on China. Well, I've been following the story of what's going on in China, and there seem to be having a, you know economic troubles there. 
Uh, I think there's a long history of this, of course, where you know every couple of decades there's some rising power that's going to surpass the United States and take over and, and buy everything. And a long time ago it was Japan, and then they kind of stalled out. And now more recently it's it's China, and it looks like they're stalling out. They're saying the projections now are that you know there were projections they were going to surpass the U.S. as the largest economy in the world, and now their projections saying, well, maybe it'll happen temporarily, but it might not happen at all. Uh, that you know they may not surpass us, and uh, their their growth is stalling out. And I think the fascinating part of this story is, you know, the the whole story, the larger story in China is, they got to the point where they finally said, okay, communism is holding us back. We have to back away from communism, allow more freedom in the economy. And they had this enormous boom that has lasted now for you know something like forty years. Um, and uh, but what happens tends to happen inevitably in these situations is, you know, the existing regimes, you know, accepts greater freedom, more free markets as a necessity of the crisis. But then the, what I just said, the crisis passes, you know, beams stop falling from the sky and almost killing you. The crisis passes and they become more confident that, well, we can go back to what we wanted, what we had before. And we can go back to exerting the control. Uh, after having after having liberated for a while, we, we've become so rich now that we can go back to exerting the control. And in fact, you know, in Chinese propaganda, I've been, one of the things I've been following is there's a lot of celebration of how the Communist Party was really what led China into this great era of growth. It wasn't them giving up on communism. It wasn't them you know, allowing much greater economic freedom. It was their bold, far-sighted planning and, innov and innovation that did it. So the idea that, you know, it's really communism that brought us to this great period of capitalist growth. Um, and a couple, a couple, uh, but to go even farther back, I think the roots of, uh, from what I'm, and I don't want your perspective on this, but from my look at this, the the things driving this seem to be various forms of, of, government control imposed under the communist regime that are now sort of coming to fruition. So one of them which is very old, which is the one-child policy in China. And this is the one they adopted, you know, back under communism in the 60s and 70s. And it really came from the fact that they had a series of famines that were caused by Mao Zedong, caused by the communist policies that uh, uh, and the, di the dictatorial policies and his basic destruction of the agricultural system of China. But they couldn't say, this is because of Mao, this is because of communism. So they jumped on the bandwagon of saying, well, this is because of overpopulation. And you know, it happened to be a very popular idea globally and in the West at the time. And so they adopted this very draconian policy of you can't have more than one child. Well, now what's happening is China's population it has, I think, has just peaked. Uh, this, you know, the statistics aren't great because the government doesn't want you to have them, but the population has peaked. It's starting to decline, and especially their working age population is starting to decline. And you know, one thing that we, that you know, uh, uh, objectivists have, have talked about a long time, and we've embraced the work of of somebody like Julian Simon, who said human beings are the ultimate resource. More humans means more growth, more production. We need more humans. Population growth is good. And I think China is beginning to find that out. But this intersects with another thing that came from the way China has, has managed its economy, you know, the, they have tried to do this top-down management of the economy. One of the reasons that the, the decline in population is going to hit them is because 
a huge amount of effort went into real estate. They built you know, all these high rises, all these giant new cities. And in, you know, it was in response partly to people moving out of the countryside, coming to the factories, working in the big cities. But it was also a result of there's a sort of a Potemkin village aspect of it over the years, because you had these local officials who were judged on how fast is your local area growing. So one of the ways they did that over the over the years was in basically sort of incur you know, having this sort of fake or 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 stimulate, you know, government stimulus for growth that has led to a vast overinvestment in real estate. And people buying apartments on spec, and that sort of all the sort of stuff we saw in the uh, 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 when we had a similar, a, a much smaller effort at boosting real estate here in the U.S. with government, you know, subsidizing people's mortgages, uh, and you had people buying apartments to flip them. You had a lot of that going on in China, and that's going to become, I think, the the, the big thing that's driving this sort of slowdown or possibly a crash. There is. A huge amount of overbuilding in real estate and real estate companies that are very tenuous, uh, defaulting on their debt, things like that. But it comes from this idea of you had government officials who were charged with, you know, they're being judged by how fast is your area, your region growing, and we're often overinvesting in, in infrastructure and doing it very wastefully. But then the last two things that are more recent that I've seen are, uh, first of all, that uh, there was an anti-technology company policy uh, imposed by Xi Jinping that he basically he, he you know he embraced this sort of we need to be an industrial power we need to have industrial we need to focus on industrial self let's and and they clamped down on a lot of the technology companies that were going to be the next big wave of growth in the Chinese economy. Now somebody said. You know, the problem is with with Xi Jinping is not so much that he's the communist, it's because he's a baby boomer, you know, and they he has that nostalgia for the industrial era, uh, some of which we see here in America, too, where there's a UAW strike going on. But the other aspect of it is that this was part of Xi Jinping's attempt to sort of reassert government control. So I, I saw a great statistics recently. Uh, somebody was mapping out the they, uh, the top 100 largest companies in China, whether they were state owned, partially state owned, or private, uh, predominantly private, you know, maybe a small stake from the government, and the predominantly private companies peak in 2019 at about 55 percent of the top 100 biggest companies in China, and after that they go kind of go back off a cliff, and it's the government has been putting its emphasis back on no, we want the state owned companies, the government owned companies to be the biggest ones. We want to give them the special favors and give them the special treatment. So there's this attempt to sort of like, let's bring back the centrally managed uh, economy where the government's in control. And I think they're they're experiencing pretty quickly the consequences of doing that. Well, thank you for that. I, I uh, look at this uh, from uh, part of my... Uh, Part of my job description, Rob, is to uh, do investment analysis and portfolio advice for money managers. So they, you know, they want to know, uh, among other things, how uh, the China economy is going, whether it's worth investing in Chinese uh, equities and things like that. And by the way, those of you who would do that kind of thing, if you just plot the performance of Chinese equities versus uh, any other equity index, the S&P or anything else, it's basically been dead money for 20 years. I mean, it doesn't really go anywhere. So just as that kind of market measure of 
uh, the value of local Chinese companies, it's just not a really very good performing investment. However, I think the bigger picture here is, and I, I'm going to differ with you a little bit here, Rob. I think what's happened here is great news and not so great news. So, so the great news, which you've always kind of you've already kind of mentioned, it's not really news, but but from 1949 until Mao died in 1976, it was just a it was a hellhole. It, it was a, a basket case economically, and of course they murdered millions and millions of people. But so interestingly, two years later, 1978, they engage in what's called this liberalization program under Deng Xiaoping, 1978. And uh, this is like two or this is like a year before Thatcher, a couple of years before Reagan. So so maybe there's a global kind of move toward more respect for free markets. But it's also what I would call the Asian model, which used to be called the Asian model. And so even before China did this, they're looking abroad and they're seeing Taiwan. They're seeing uh, Thailand, Malaysia, South Korea, others, Hong Kong doing really very well. But here's the Asian model. The Asian model is you don't have much in the way of political freedom, but uh, we'll let you do pretty much anything you want economically. And there are measures. You can find these. There's Freedom House measures political freedom. Heritage, a conservative outfit will measure economic freedom. So I track these indices very closely and try to figure out who's becoming freer, who's not becoming freer, how it relates to, you know, their economic financial performance. And, and, and China basically said, that's what we're going to do in 1978. Well, that's what we're going to do. What we're going to do is not give greater free speech or voting or anything like that. We're, we're to hell with the political stuff. But we are going to adopt as much as we can more laissez-faire pro-capitalist policies in the economy. And that is what brought many of uh, the Chinese people out of dire poverty, and thank goodness, but it is definitely a different model. And I think what happens is when people say, China's horrible, they're usually citing the political stuff. And when they say, as the economists will, China's amazing, it's usually the economic stuff. And when I track the freedom of economic, uh, economic freedom indices, Rob, and Heritage, and Heritage it's really amazing because there they have not gone down. They've gone up over the years. And then I'll, I'll measure them usually like relative to the U.S., just like, you know, for some other benchmark. And since this is hard to believe, actually, since 2007, if you just divide one index into the other, China is becoming freer than the U.S., but economically, not not obviously not politically. And the U.S. is going down in a trend and China's kind of going up. It's very interesting. They still have a long way to go, but but here's another number, really shocking. Something like 600, this is what have been well-documented, something like 600 million Chinese people have come out of low levels of poverty uh, in this period, like since 1978. That's like twice the U.S. population. And why? Because they did free up the economy. You look at skylines like Shanghai and, el and elsewhere. Certain provinces are very poor still, very rural, but some of them are just spectacularly financially successful. The skylines look nicer than New York. It's really quite an amazing story. So um, what am I saying here? I wish, like you, Rob, you and I want political and economic freedom. We want them to go together. But I don't know. I, I seem to be biased, maybe because I'm an economist. I seem to be biased toward the idea of, of economic freedom because day to day, people trying to build their livelihoods, they really you know, are going to be benefited if they're free to do economic things like in America, like who cares whether you get to vote every four years for these losers, you know, these like false choices we get all the time. And 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 yet if you can run your business, uh, you know, more freely every day and you can build your wealth and build your standard of living, build your literally your livelihood 
to me, that's the real test. Uh, you know, if I given my druthers, um, so to speak, that's one thing. Here's the other thing I tested. I, I couldn't believe it, but there's something called SOEs, state-owned enterprises, and there's measures of the degree to which China has state-owned enterprises. The number goes down, down, down. You know, in other words, in 1978, of course, they had many. Most of the businesses were state-owned. But SOEs are down to like, I don't know, 30% of the economy now. It used to be 100%. So, it, I mean, it's taken a long time. Thatcher did it like in what, a decade. She tried to privatize a bunch of things that the Brits had nationalized. But so even on a measure like that, I don't think they're so good on land. When I when I test things like land rights in China and the ability to lease land, and that's not so good. That's not so good. But um, this SOE thing, I thought, uh, was very interesting. What else do I have here? Um, trade. Okay. One of the things I'm looking at why they are slowing down economically. It's true. And I'm thinking, is this because they're trying to reimpose this Maoist political philosophy? I, I have a different theory. I think what's, I, I think they are trying to become more communist politically, but I think they're trying to get away with not being so communist economically, right? To get their, have their cake and eat it too, Rob, right? And uh, and it's it's amazing to me since 1978 they've never had a recession. Wow, the U.S. has had like six or seven recessions. I mean, periods where the output goes down, you know, year over year. They've only like fluctuated between 12% growth rates and 8% growth rates, and it may be down to four now. Now, granted, we should be skeptical about GDP numbers from communist regimes, right? But but the fact is, they have stock markets, skyscrapers, skylines companies, stuff they send to Walmart, which the Soviet Union never did. We had never had any evidence of that, remember, coming from the Soviet Union. And there's undenying evidence of that from China. So it, the, the whole thing can't be like a Potemkin village, um, which is a Russian term, of course. I think what's happened is the Trump trade wars have really hurt China. But that's not China, that's Trump. Trump said, oh, China is sending us too many things. We need to stop China sending us stuff. And interestingly, it's the only policy Biden didn't reverse. The only Biden, the only Trump policy Biden did not reverse was the tariffs and the restrictions on uh, imports of, of Chinese goods. So I think that's hurting them. But how odd! It's not because they've adopted communism. It's because Trump adopt, adopted protectionism, and Biden kept it. So I, I'll stop there because I want to hear I want to hear back from you on this. I don't want to I don't want to monologue, but just to push back that about what China's doing and why. Well, a couple of things to that. One is uh, the reason yeah. I find this interesting is is because um, I, I do think, you know, I think I just differ with you a little bit more on this, that I do think the yeah. model of you can have no political freedom, but lots of economic freedom, I think yeah. that is long-term unsustainable. And you can see uh, if you look at the Asian yeah. model, yeah. you know, most of the other, you know, the Asian tigers, they had initially started with not much economic freedom and then more, right. uh, well, sorry, not much political freedom and right. more economic freedom. And then as that comes along and as people become wealthy and they become, you know, they become middle class, they push for more political freedom. Right. Yes. Because, you know, as people, it's partly as people, you know, are not worried about starving anymore, they start worried about having a say and having it, you know, and, and they become more concerned. They have the leisure to do that. And also as they become more middle class, they become more powerful, more have a greater ability to to pressure their government. Uh, so what's happened is I think that there's a natural progression that as you become 
uh, as, as a country liberalizes economically, it is going to have to have greater political freedom. And I think China's going to have is, is really facing a choice there of saying, which do we prefer? Which is more important to us, the economic control or the political control? And you know, I think Xi Jinping is, is very clear to me that he has the attitude, the political control is more important. And so you talk about state-owned enterprises. So the, the figure I saw was they saying that yes, state-owned enterprises are lower as a percentage of the overall economy than you know they've been going down steadily since 1978. But that recently, among the largest companies in China, the ones that are most amenable to pressure from down from above, political pressure from above, that that's reversed, and that's because of this attempt to say, okay, we want to have more things that are under our control. Uh, and so I, th I don't think they're going to go back to a Maoist style communist thing. I think they're going to try to go back to sort of more of a fascist style. Uh, uh, you know, I think that they are kind of quasi fascist. The yeah. current system is, and it's going to go more back to, you know, we don't nationalize, we don't nationalize everything yeah. and we don't plan right. down completely, but they try to assert more top down right. control politically. And I think that is, I think that's driving a lot of it. And then there's, of course, you know, now, I don't know to my researchers enough to know to what extent this is a factor, but there's this issue of friend, what they call friend shoring. Yeah. That companies have looked at this and realized, wait a minute, you know, especially with the current war in Ukraine, that they've said, wait a minute, you know, if there's, if, if, if China tries to take Taiwan, where am I going to be if I've got China, if I've got factories in Shanghai, you know, <laughs> and what if there is suddenly a, a, a embargoes and, you know, disruption that comes from that? Uh, this could be a problem. We should be investing and, in, you know, we sure, sure we can outsource, but outsourcing countries that are less likely to create the political and geo, the, the geopolitical turmoil. Yes, uh, on the on the Tigers, one of the countries I neglected to mention was Singapore. So if you look up uh, at Heritage, the freest, economically freest country in the world, it's Singapore. Now, if you ask what Singapore's political freedoms are, a lot of people would complain. That they're not very there's not much there, uh, but Singapore and Hong Kong have toggled back and forth on the top of the heritage list. Remember, this is heritage is a conservative group, so if anything, you would think they would be biased against the more uh, statist oriented regimes. But they are looking strictly at economic freedom. And the other thing is, the U.S. Uh, economic freedom has plummeted in the last 15 years. Uh, I think the U.S. was ranked top five uh, 15 years ago, and now it's like 25, 26, and going down. But Rob, I wanted to mention this. I, I think you make a really good point about that the idea of fascism, socialism, we can get caught up, say, in the semantics. But I do like the idea, the model that says, listen, pure capitalism is not only ownership, but control of property, not just the means of production, but you know, yourself, your body, your choice, and your stuff. And if the opposite purely is socialism, public, state ownership and control Fascism is a hybrid system, right? You and I, I think, agree on that. It's uh, private ownership, you know, in title, but the government tells you what to do with it, not only with your body, what to put in it and take out of it, but what to do with your business. Is this wrong, Rob? My theory has been that the U.S. is moving from capitalism to fascism, not to socialism. We're not nationalizing things. I don't know, except land in uh, Alaska. And but and then China is moving from socialism. Mao to fascism. Now, now, directionally, that would mean that the U.S. is moving in the wrong direction, right? Away from our ideal, 
But 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 if I'm right, you'd also have to say China, with fits and starts, and one step forward, one two steps back, maybe, is moving from from socialism to fascism, and that, then then the question would become: Is your next move back to socialism? I don't think so. I think you even said no, and so we need to push them more toward capitalism. But I don't think we do that with trade wars and everything. But but if I'm right about this theory, Rob, that that's what's happening over the last you know 15 years or so, that's a that's a discussion of like convergence, and not so much the conservative interpretation of com- combativeness. You know that the, that these two superpowers are like coming toward each other and kaboom. My theory more like says now they're both likely moving toward this hybrid, and they're looking you know, more and more alike. Uh, it's true that their economy in China is big, but remember per capita basis, I, I checked the numbers, per capita income in China is something like um, 16.4 thousand a year and the US is 60. Um, Russia is like 26,000, mostly due to the oil. But um, let me just ask you this, Rob, because I know you follow the conservative movement very closely. You're a very astute observer. I've always had a problem with this kind of disconnect that goes something like this. They're communists, so we should worry about them, including their military buildup. And then, okay, but then on the other hand, they're economically a powerhouse, and they're and they're stealing our jobs and our lunch, and uh, we need to block their imports. Uh, we know theoretically that if it was truly communist, they'd be a basket case. They'd be like the Soviet Union, you know. So, and and yet they seem like they do seem like an economic powerhouse which must mean they're much more capitalistic than we think. You see what I'm saying, Rob? It can't be yeah. simultaneous. It can't be they are both commies and the most prosperous people on the planet, right? I, I don't think the right has reconciled. And, and the, reconciled. Well, okay, yeah. And, and the reason why I think people can't really get their heads around this correctly is I think you're right to some extent that they are moving towards, uh, I, I would say, fascism in the technical sense. I mean, not in not as in the Nazi. Was, well, actually, I would say in, in they have concentration camps and they're engaged oh, in a, yeah. uh, arguably in a, in a genocide of the, of the Uyghurs. Uh, so maybe in that sense as well. Yes, but yes, they're yes. moving towards in a sense of we're not, you know, we're we're going to have a, a common economy that is nominally free, though with heavy amounts of government interference and regulation. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that, you know, it, the big vogue right now on the right is for industrial policy. And that's why we have the trade wars. And the funny thing about this, as you mentioned, Biden hasn't reversed the trades war. Well, that's because that's an old Democratic Party policy, right? That's the Democratic yeah. Party platform. Yeah. Of, and yeah. it's a Democratic Party platform from like 1983. Uh-huh. Biden yeah. was in yeah. the Senate. Robert Reich and Biden. And so he doesn't, he doesn't even have to change anything. This uh-huh. is the that's good. Yeah, uh, putting yeah. putting uh, tariffs on on those foreign imports imports to protect the unions. That's that's an old that's an old Democratic Party policy from from the eighties, and 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 he's he's a fossil from the nineteen eighties. So it's a, you know both Trump and Biden are really fossils from that era. So it's of course it takes total sense that they would be in agreement on that. But what I find fascinating is they are essentially, I mean, ideologically, they're essentially in agreement with Xi Jinping as well. He is an industrial policy guy. And you know, I think the extent that China is slowing down and having problems, I think that partly because Xi Jinping is an industrial policy guy. He is a guy who says, you know, uh, and this is partly the going on with the crackdown on the tech companies. Because he's saying, oh, all these tech companies, people are paying too much video games. Uh, we should crack down on that because that's not real economic production. And we should be focusing on more on industrial stuff. And that's why they've sort of 
killed off a couple of big tech companies there that I think would be you know necessary to fuel the next stage of growth for China. But I think that what's happening is that that again the, the larger uh, the larger pattern I see is this thing that a, a country will often embrace greater freedom for a temporary for a burst of time because they're poor because you know the old system has led them to disaster. They'll embrace greater economic freedom and sometimes greater political freedom to some extent. And they'll do it in the emergency to get them out of the emergency. And then it produces a lot of great wealth and, and a, a great a, a great leap forward, <laughs> to use a phrase, an actual great leap forward. And then what happens is the political inertia of the system tends to kick in. And you know that's the long-term arc of the United States to some extent. The political inertia kicks in. And the desire to say, well, we should have more central management, we should have more government control, that kicks in and they go and they start reversing the reversing or slowing down or in some way undermining the very the very policies that that led to that growth in the first place. Really good stuff, Rob. And uh, what do you think of this, too? Here's another angle on China I've been thinking about. Um, uh, in many ways the idea that China doesn't give a damn about environmentalism, doesn't give a damn about climate agreements, builds, uh, I don't know what the latest numbers are, you know, they build a new hydroelectronic dam, a hydroelectric dam every three months, coal plants, belt and you know, highways and infrastructure and everything. So, okay, they're not completely laissez-faire pro-capitalist like the U.S. was in the 1880s, but they're building like it's the 1880s. Remember that song, like party, like it's 1999. China is like building and growing and like it's 1880s. And from my perspective, I love it. I love it. I don't want them to be anywhere far from capitalism, but it's, it's a model, which I think ironically enough, you know, Rob, that is the old Marxist model not in the sense that the Marxist programs could achieve it, but remember the old left idea was labor must be liberated and we must industrialize and we must grow and prosper and blah, blah, blah. The new left, the Greens that I identified in the 70s, you know, the anti-industrial revolution, we know was against all that. You know, if capitalism has produced uh, prosperity, let's come out against prosperity. You know, and, and asceticism and denial and self-abnegation. And, and China is so interesting to me because it doesn't embrace any of that. So, so the left today is as mixed as the conservatives are. The conservatives are seeing them as prosperous commies, which make no sense. And the Greens are looking at them and saying, my God, they're despoiling the environment. But I got to admit that a lot of people are being brought out of poverty. Yeah, just like in the 1880s. So, I mean, what do you think of that? That 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 is one of the um, one of the. I, I'm applauding from the sideline when they build all this stuff, even though some of it is goofy and it's overbuilt and they go ghost cities. And I I know all that. I know I know a lot of it's going to go wrong, but a lot of it's gone right too because they want growth, they want industry, and that's not true in America. The, the secret of China's growth is two things. One is that when you've been under communism for forty years. Anything is an improvement, right? There's just so <laughs> much rest activity. 
And, you know, this is a, a large country that was very, you know, very much engaged in commerce before that, engaged in industry, engaged in acti economic activity. You suppressed all that uh, very forcibly, very stringently for 40 years under Mao or 30, 40 years under Mao. Yeah. Actually, it's more like 30 years. For 30 years, you yeah, about 30 suppressed years. all that and put it and, 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 and destroyed it. And, yeah. and then you, you, you take the lids off of that. And even if you imperfectly liberalize, there's so much you know, liberated activity there that you're going to experience that long uh, period of, of, of prolonged growth. Same thing that happened with the Asian tigers. Uh, but the other aspect of, and then, so part of that too, is that, you know, one of the keys to economic growth, one of the things we need to relearn in America, one of the keys to economic growth is not so much this policy or that policy, it's just wanting it. Wanting yeah. it enough to yes. not yes. let something else get in the way. Right. Now, I think right now with the regime in China, my concern is they're going to want they're going to they're they're not they're going to let something else get in the way, which is political control gets in the way. But in America, of course, we have all these other things that we have decided. And I think there's a certain uh, an interesting argument on this is that there's become a love of stasis. And you see that in housing policy in the U.S. Yeah, yeah our little town, our little suburban town has a certain character. We have a character to the neighborhood and we have to preserve the character of the neighborhood. There can't be any change at all. And this idea of like stasis of having our environment around us stay exactly the way it is right now has become a a, a public good that it, it, that has that supersedes everything else, right? It becomes a something as a form of welfare for the middle class. You know, part of the welfare is we will enact regulations so that so that your little suburban town stays exactly the way it was thirty years ago, uh, or at least as close as we can. But anyway, that's that's part of it. Is that just some pure liberation? The second part is yes. I think the key, the the, the real secret of uh, of of China's sustained growth is be, because they want it. They've been willing to, you know, engage in vast increases in the amount of energy they're using and the amount of resources they're using, in a way that with our environmental controls we have not been willing to do. Mm -hmm. Now that's mixed, unfortunately, however, with the fact that there is such a high degree of government involvement there not just in a regulatory level, but also in the corruption level. You know, that, that because you have a dictatorship, you have, always have high levels of corruption. And so you mentioned the Belt and Road thing. So the Belt and Road has turned out to be a giant boondoggle because it was done partly as an attempt to sort of gain political control and, and sort of extend China's political control overseas that we're going to come and build infrastructure projects in Africa and places like that. To give us, you know, to to basically win us allies, local allies, but what's happened with a lot of those projects? I think I know in Sri Lanka there's a big one that was like this, is that they're financed with huge amounts of debt. They're often built in places that don't necessarily make sense, and there's huge and and part of the impetus for building them is because local companies and local politicians and Chinese politicians can get their nephews and you know their people on the inside and drain away a lot of that money and corruption. And so a lot of them have ended up not being really productive. You know, they built a port somewhere and it turns out not to be a really productive project. It turns out not to be well built. And then there's huge amounts of debt and they're not able to pay the debt on it. So it's it's sort of this weird mixture of we want growth. We're going to build all these dams and all, all that sort of thing and build new coal power plants. And that's fueled their growth tremendously. But it's also fueled it in a way very wastefully in the sense that there's also this tremendous amount of corruption involved. So along with that, you get a lot of Potemkin village type of projects.
Yeah, really good points. I, I, uh, it's nice to see that, uh, however crude they might be over the years. And again, I'm an, I, I'm often a numbers guy. One of I want metrics and uh, people measuring things. There are measures of corruption. Uh, there are measures of economic and political freedom uh, that uh, uh, social scientists have put together. And then, of course, you can always do uh, you know wealth measures per capita, real GDP, and things like that. Um, I, I've published a couple of things people might want to look at at AIER.org where I publish essays. One of them was relating the degree of a country's freedom, the degree of their political corruption, and then the degree to which they're prosperous. And maybe this audience wouldn't be surprised to learn the more the government intervenes in the economy, the more corrupt there is, corruption there is, and the lower their prosperity. And uh, China has been moving in the direction uh, of less corruption. Now they still have more corruption, and Russia, same thing. They have more corruption than the US, but they're moving in the direction of less corruption. And part of it is if you liberate more, there's less interaction you know, between, there's less rent selling, rent seeking, all that kind of thing that public choice people talk about. I, I, Rob, I agree with you about the issue of debt, but there's a lot of uh, debt pessimists about China that have been predicting the collapse of China for two decades. And um, this, this was set on these specific Belt and Road yeah, projects. I agree. Yeah. Gordon, Gordon Chang is one of the worst. He appears all the time as a China specialist. Gordon in 2001 wrote a book called The Coming Collapse of China. I mean, it was like 22 years ago. They say he has been so wrong on so many things, but they still they still interview him. Jo Rob, I want to ask you about this because it's more geopolitical. I know you love uh, stuff about military and foreign policy. The other thing I noticed about China and its leaders and its policies, not just this idea that they're intrigued uh, and have been for decades about the Asian model, you know, can we get away with uh, political oppression plus political uh, economic prosperity? And the other thing I think they're intrigued by is, you know, all these books that have come out, very interesting books, actually, in the last couple of decades, The Rise and Fall of Nations, you know, What Makes Nations Great or Not, and, and the themes, Rob, you know, many of the themes have been that you can't have military prowess without economic prowess. So, so China's like, very, I think they read these books and they're like, wow, and they see history and they're thinking, uh, well, we're gonna build up our economy, not because we're big advocates of human well-being and because we're humanists, <laughs> right? But because that's what great powers do. And then great powers can build, build militaries. And now, but, but here, here is where I back off a little bit. And, and the question is, that may be true. That may be true, like what they think, and they actually might be building up their military. But I have a hard time swallowing the conservative view today that China is poised to be a hegemon globally. You know that they're going to use these Chinese military to like start taking over countries. I think they just want a strong military because they're thinking this is what global grown-ups, this is what global superpowers do. And and what do you think about that? So what do you think about that? First of all, well, the the embrace of the model, but then are, are they really imperialistic or just defensive? Uh, good. Well, I I wouldn't describe them as being just defensive. I think they have certain imperialistic ambitions. I mean, this is the Middle Kingdom. They, they you know, Middle Kingdom basically means that's the old, that's the translation for the old, this old view of China is named for itself, the Middle Kingdom. But what that really means is we're the center of the world. Right. And they do have this idea that we should be the center of the world. We should be setting the standard for everything. Everybody think everybody should basically be judged, should be kowtowing to us. Kowtowing being a, of course, a word for the, the old Chinese uh, way of showing your obedience to the emperor. You, you bow down low. It's a kowtow. Um, 
but no. you know they have that attitude everybody should be should be no. uh, subordinate to us no. and i also think there's one other thing that happens when you have a dictatorship which is that they don't like the idea of alternative models out there that can aspire their own citizens so having if you, you know, when you have a democrat we have democrat democracies we have democratic nations they don't like the idea of this being a model that our people can look to so they try to sort of build up no 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 we are don't worry about that don't don't look at those models we're more powerful and more important than that if you know, the road to national greatness goes through you know through through the party through the dictatorship uh and there's an attempt to want to first of all to to threaten and to close down and to to subvert in what if they can the 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 the, the free country the, the politically free countries that are around them i think that's why they part of one of the reasons they have such an obsession with taiwan um and there's also this attempt to sort of build themselves up to be greater and more powerful and we're gonna we're gonna stand down and put the united states in their place uh, and there's you know it, it goes to a larger thing which is there is this eternal search essentially for a an alternative model to uh to a to for, to a free society right so you know uh, the us has stood i mean we we're, we've slacked off a little on economic freedom but we have stood for a long time as the model of the, the 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 free society as a model of government and there's an eternal search for no no we're going to have a better alternative to that we're going to go to fascism or we're going to go to authoritarianism or we're going to go to you know uh industrial policy the people keep searching for this idea of we're going to have some some way to have national greatness greater yeah. as great as the United States, even greater than the United States yeah. without having any degree, without having the, the, the freedom that U.S. has. Yeah. And, and I, I, Rob, I think one of the reasons I'm an optimist on China, Russia and other is I'm, I'm old enough to remember how awful they were when they were really true commies, you know, Lenin, Stalin and Khrushchev, and, you know, Mao. And, and when I hear people today say they're communists, they're I'm like, you have no idea what real communism is, you know, and whatever Russia and China are searching for, I, I feel like, oh, thank goodness, they're searching for something other than that horrible thing they did in the 20th century. But maybe that's my naive of me. I, I think that's, a, I, I regard that as a little over, the, the, the biggest indication I see about China being in trouble, by the way, is the fact that um, I'm seeing a lot of, a lot of European and American expats who were in, who went to China, were living yeah. there. Yeah, are, they're, they're departing in droves. Yeah, um, and because they view it as like this is you know they, a lot of them went there. I, I have a friend who went there. It was the land of opportunity. Yeah. You know, it was a great place to go, and now not so much. And it's become a more hostile place, a more controlled place. I've I, heard. I, I, I've heard the same thing about. I've heard the same thing about companies. But Rob, what I'm suggesting is this might have much more to do with the trade wars than it mm. does with Xi Jinping you know, just cracking down for the hell of it. But it could be could be a mix of the two. But here's another thing. If I'm right, talk about implications. If I'm right that they really don't want, obviously, political liberty, but they want to try to get away with preserving economic uh, liberty and to get their prosperity so they can be a geopolitical player, um, that's why they wouldn't touch Hong Kong and Taiwan. You know, the idea oh, that they are touching Hong Kong. The, the idea that they're like poised to take over what amount to uh, economic models of capitalism. Um, this 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 warning has been gone on for decades, right? They could have done it decades ago. They haven't done it. But but see, if I'm right, it's because their view is no, we want these golden gooses to keep producing. 
It's not the kind of moral argument you and I would use, but it, but in terms of geopolitical prediction or analysis, it would suggest that why the hell would China, you know, botch the job in Hong Kong? In Hong Kong, they intervened because they didn't want people becoming more democratic. I don't think it was an issue of they want to shut down Hong Kong's prosperity or they want no, to no, shut no, they, down Taiwan's well, prosperity. And yes so and no, they, because it's they, a, lot, they, a lot of the a lot of the China people you know that they'll laugh at something like Venezuela. They'll laugh at the America because they'll say, "Oh, you guys are Democrats, and you think it's great as long as you vote for things, everything's fine." And then they they literally make fun of Venezuela because they'll say, "You voted for Madero, you you, you voted for Chavez, and look what you got now. You're eating your own pets." And China's laughing because China's like, "Well, you're socialist, but you're idiot, you're complete idiots." You know, so, so they, one, they, one of the great stories about this, by the way, this may be lead into the BRICS discussion if we got any time for that, is um, when South Africa, when, when Nelson Mandela took over in South Africa, you know, he right. was, his, his party yeah. was very, very far left, very Marxist. Yeah. And what happened is they had all these countries that come in and countries that had supported him yeah. uh, during the Cold War. All these countries came in and, the, you know, people from Vietnam and people from China, whatever, came in. And he and they, they had some proposal to nationalize all the industries, yeah. and they looked at and said, "Don't do that." <laughs> yeah. Those, yeah, it was all the communist countries who were telling yeah. him, "No, the last thing you want to do is right. to nationalize the mines right. and nationalize the industries I, and all know. that." And that's yeah. how this didn't happen when he when when Nelson Mandela came in. It didn't happen because he was advised in part because he was advised by you know the, the these nominally communist governments not to impose communism. Uh, but but I do think my issue in this is, which is that I think that political freedom and economic freedom do go hand in hand over the long run. And my concern is that the Chinese government will be put in this position. And I think Putin in Russia is definitely in this position where the political control becomes more important, has to become more important at some point. Then they, yeah. they want to keep the, the yeah. goose, they want to keep the golden egg, yeah. but the political control will at some point they'll have to make that choice and it'll become more important and i think yeah it's, it's a it's a really good point it's such an important issue in political economy i know this much i think you and i both disagree at least with this kind of milton friedman view or the economy i call it the economistic view that if there's economic freedom it will bleed into and create political freedom i don't believe that i'm an economist i don't even believe that i wish there was freedom across the board but i'm also super skeptical of the idea that political freedom is defined as voting, you know, uh, general will and democracy, because they voted for Hitler, they voted for Maduro, they've they voted for socialism, they've ruined these countries. So you don't get the vote in China, true. But if the China leaders move you from socialism to fascism to capitalism, great. I, I, I wish we could have both. But yeah, no, so looking the other way, I agree with you, Rob. I think it's hard to sustain political oppression and economic prosperity because they're all because the political autocrats are going to be super tempted all the time to intervene uh, in the economy. I, I think that is a problem. That's why it's probably unsustainable. But it's certainly- because, because yeah. you also have like the character you know, they talk about in China, they call them princelings, which are the, uh, yeah. the sons and, and nephews and what have you of yeah. the top party oh. officials. You know, what's right. the point of going your way, you know, climbing up the greasy pole to get to the top of the ladder in in a in a in the communist system if you can't use it you know to to enrich yeah. yourself and your friends and your family well we also promised to talk about bricks and i'll i'll be as brief as possible it's somewhat i the reason i brought it up as a possible add-on to this is uh the c in bricks is china so i thought 
I saw uh, Rob and I talked and I said, well, let, let's say something about bricks because that's it, it is in the headlines and people aren't quite familiar with what it is. So I, I think we only have eight or 10 minutes left. Very quickly, BRIC is, BRICS is an acronym. It's an, an it's not an, an acronym. It's, a, it's an acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China, South America. So it's five countries who came up with the acronym. South Africa. South Africa. What's that? South Africa was the yes. Well, what did I say? So, South, America. South America. Oh, I'm sorry, South Africa. Yeah, and I know you know. Yeah, South America is not. A country. Oh, thank you for that. Thank <laughs> you. For that. You know, I know you know that. That would have been stupid, like South America. But... Okay, so thank you, Rob. And okay, so here's the origin. In 2001, it's a long time ago. Uh, I think a guy, a guy named Jim O'Neill, who was at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, he simply came up with the acronym to group together countries. Now, get this. Now, he was trying to create like an investment portfolio of like countries that shared characteristics, which were not, uh, you know, fully developed conventional big economies. So, so now think of this now. He thought of Brazil, Russia, India, and China, that was just those four at the time, as having the following features, ready? Huge geographic footprint. Yes, they're all huge countries. Second, huge, untapped, mostly, natural resources. Yes, also true. And then, uh, you know, then he would say something like political systems that are not really conducive to getting this stuff out of the ground, to, to extracting this stuff and becoming a wealthy country like the U.S. did or Britain did or other countries, you know, that just did not have the equivalent of natural endowments. So anyway, the point is, this is very interesting because the point is, this is a capitalist trying to put together like an equity index following these four countries. And what's interesting is what's actually happened over the decades since is that these four countries have interacted more on a geopolitical basis, Russia, China, Britain, and uh, Brazil, and India, you know, talking to each other, coordinating policies, sharing notes, having conferences. In the case of South Africa, adding South Africa more recently. Now, why is South Africa in the same category? Same thing. They have diamonds, they have gold, they have natural resources. But, but key, the key to it is untapped, like proved underground reserves, but not fully exploited. And now the idea of fully exploiting is a capitalist idea. And none of these countries really politically can be described as pro-capitalist. And yet, I, I, so I wanted to bring this up only because they're getting more attention. They represent an increasing share of global GDP. I mean, they've far surpassed now the G7, which are the seven most uh, industrialized advanced economies. So, so they're, they're kind of creating a, call it a political economic block, BLOC. And um, I'm not big into the idea of, wow, they're creating this conglomerate that's going to compete with the U.S. and, and you know, submerge the U.S. dollar. And they, but I, I wanted to bring it up because it's in the headlines. They did meet recently. And one of the more controversial things they said is maybe we should create a gold-based currency. What the hell? To an objectivist and a capitalist, you're thinking gold-based anything? We, we haven't had the gold standard in 52 years, right, since Nixon went off the gold standard. And, and one of the reasons is they're thinking the U.S. is using the dollar Trump was using the dollar. Biden is using the dollar and freezing our assets, you know, over Ukraine. We don't really trust the dollar anymore. So we're going to create a uh, competition to the dollar 
And the, the four or five of us are going to get together. Now, I don't think this is actually going to happen. But the fact that they're even thinking about it, the fact that they're even thinking in those kind of broad geopolitical terms and thinking of real money or as close to real money as possible is a very interesting thing because it's kind of cockeyed. It's not something you'd expect from semi-free uh, mixed economies. And yet, I think the reason this is happening, and this is so weird, is those four or five economies do want the kind of growth and prosperity that Americans once wanted in the 1880s and 90s. And so it's a real head scratcher because on the one hand, they want complete um, development of these natural resources. They have no, in this regard, they have no like environmental influence, whatever. And that's why the environmentalists hate the BRICS. Uh, but on the other hand, they don't quite have the political institutions of you know respect for property rights, respect for contract that that would make it possible. So I I, I classify the BRICS as an interesting thing to keep an eye on, and and they might amount to something, but it is still you know five disparate countries. Only two of them are contiguous. Only Russia and China are contiguous, and maybe they become more interesting only because China and Russia have come together over the Ukraine war. So yeah. this BRICS thing, like being in the background for a while, everyone's thinking, wow, the BRICS consolidation or the BRICS coordination is going to accelerate now because the two major players, Russia and China, are becoming allied now and, uh, you know, to be continued. But, I think Robin, Rob and I will talk about this more, I think, in future sessions. But I just want to put just, that, just put that on the radar. And that's what BRICS are. And that's why they're worth watching. That's all. I have two sentences on that. One is uh, I, I saw something about how they they tried to create a BRICS development bank, sort of a, a competitor yeah. to IMF, but yeah. it uses the dollar. It, it, it right. makes yeah. it. Yeah. So right. that indicates that this isn't really coming together. I think there's been a long, like I said, there's a, there's a long dream of America as the, the leader of sort of liberal democracy, you know, yeah. political freedom and economic freedom and great power. This has always been this attempt to say, let's come up with some alternative. You know, the, they used to have the non-aligned nations uh, yeah. in the Cold War. And, you know, this idea we will have an alternative block of countries that represent a different model. I think that's why people get excited about BRICS. Yeah. I think it's too disparate. I mean, India and China hate each other. Uh, so, and India is now becoming bigger, the, the bigger country by population. So I, I think it's a, it's an attempt to sort of cobble together a little bit of a dictator's club that will have these authoritarian countries all get together and support each other. But I think there's just, it's too disparate, too many different interests, uh, too many diverging interests and not enough real strength to, you know, because they aren't willing to adopt capitalism, uh, in the, in the way that we would, we would, we would think of. I think they're not going to have that kind of right. that strength to 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 take the lead. Okay, but it's not. I mean, technically, Rob, it's not really a dictator's club. It's India and Brazil, which are both considered huge democracies. I mean, those are yes, but in, huge. So, is, so it, 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 it is a, a lot of questions about what's going on in. Oh, I know, in, I know. In, it is a hybrid. It is a hybrid. And you create a, a Hindu nationalist country. So there's a. Right. They, no, they it's a I still, I still, I still think it's a hybrid group politically. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. But, yeah. but, but yeah. economically, what, what they all share is massive natural resources. This is how I would classify it, that have yet to be tapped, that they kind of want tapped, which is which, which explodes the heads of any Democrat or environmentalist in this country. That's why it's interesting to me from the standpoint of I want economic development. I just don't think they've learned yet how to do that. 
But the fact that they're even combining, I think that the uh, BRICS, both politically, geopolitically, and economically, the BRICS has more aspirations than uh, than specific reality right now. But we don't even have aspirations to dig up anything anymore, Rob. So yeah, so I'm I'm a sucker for aspirations to uh, dig stuff up and use it. Hey, uh, Lawrence, if we run out of time, because Rob and I can talk all night long. As you yes, uh, unfortunately, we have. Yes, we unfortunately have run out of time, but um, I were do want to thank you both. Were we, were we supposed to take questions, Lawrence? Were we supposed to get? Well, luckily, a lot of the questions that were asked, yes, y'all did answer just uh, uh, back and forth. Really, so I, I have oh. been watching the chat, and I've been we've been addressing everything this. Oh, 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 really? Okay. Yes, um, I will just say just with a little bit of time, uh, one question that I'll try to get to, maybe two, depending how fast. Uh, there was a question earlier from C. White on Instagram asking that China holds about $859 billion of U.S. debt. With the current economic troubles, do you think that they might somehow leverage this uh, against the U.S. to try to get this paid to help themselves out? My, 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 my understanding is the old thing is if, was if, if you owe the bank $100,000, you're in trouble. If you owe them a million dollars, they're in trouble. What was that? I did a variation of that. You know, that I think that's that's my take on that. But you 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 know more about this, Richard. No, that's okay. So so that number is less than a trillion, and the USO is 33 trillion. So it's like three percent. It's it's irrelevant. No, the the story of China's gonna dump our debt and wreck our finances is not uh, valid. Is there another one? Yes, uh, this is just another one. This one is from I am yes, who asked, is there a moral argument that supporting or investing in businesses in China has only helped them keep their more authoritarian principles on life support? You've kind of touched upon this already, but just sort of to get the definitive sort of answer from you both. That's a good question. Rob, take that one. Well, let me take this one because I'm going to disagree yeah. with you. But you, you disagreed with the Milton Friedman idea that that greater economic freedom would bleed over. Now, I, I don't think it inevitably lead because it obviously hasn't inevitably led to greater uh, right. political freedom in China. Right. But I do think it, if you want to say bleeds over, that's vague enough that I think I would accept that, that I think it creates some of the conditions. Hmm. It, it makes a more conducive environment that when you have yeah. economic liberalization, you get a more conducive environment towards having political freedom. And you've seen that in the other Asian tigers and that, that kind of area. But I think there's always going to be that push and pull, though, that, you know, sometimes the economic growth is used as an excuse by the leaders to say, hey, look, you know, the, the, the Communist Party brought you all this economic growth. Therefore, yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we should we should contain or continue our rule. Yeah. And I related to this question, too. Also, I've heard it quite legitimately said that uh, China steals our stuff, steals our IP, steals our patents and copyrights. And uh, and if that's true, then the Trump administration should have gone after them for that, not for stupid shit like uh, sending our goods that we buy at Walmart. But um, interestingly, I remember Carly Fiorina many years ago was asked when she was running uh, HP, Hula Packard, she said, they said, uh, when you go over to China, uh, do they steal your patents or what happened? You know what she said? She says, no, we give them to them. And they said, why? And she said, so we can get access to their markets. So there's the political control, right? Uh, access to their uh, workers and their trade. She said, so it's a quick pro, pro and, but she said, we never give them like first generation stuff. We give them our, like our old stuff. And and they know this and they buy it anyway, because it's like buying a, I don't know, it's like buying a used car. Uh, you're, you're 10 years behind, but you're still getting something new. And I always thought that was interesting because I thought these business people, however pragmatic they might be, they're, they're not really being stolen from. They don't have to go over to China. 
they've, they've been so they've been taught this idea that well, there's a billion people there that will buy your stuff and and they go over there and all the CEOs go over there and they they you know they have FOMO fear of missing out they don't want to be the company that didn't set up operations in China and stuff like that so if the question is do American businessmen going over there you know kind of feed the autocrat maybe maybe but I don't think China would have been economically as um, improved had they not uh, in, invited in uh, foreign businesses. Um, but uh, I, any others, uh, Lawrence? Uh, I think uh, the, there are still some more questions, but I think we, we have kind of gone over time limits. So perhaps we'll have to see in the future about making these for a bit more of a longer period of time so everything could be covered. But uh, I do... That would, that, that would be five hours, like Rob, you and I <laughs> The five-hour Rob uh, Richard sessions, yeah, okay. It's definitely something to consider. But uh, <laughs> again, I want to thank both of you for uh, taking time out of your day to come and discuss these uh, issues. I, I do think they're, they're very interesting, especially with what's going on. And a lot, like I said, a lot of the questions were answered sort of through the course of y'all talking. So I think that was really good. So for those of you who are watching at home, thank you for your time. Hope you enjoyed this. If you like what we do, please uh, consider supporting the Atlas Society so we can do more content like this. And let us know if you would like uh, other types of content, maybe longer form. We It's good to get this kind of feedback. Uh, if you are interested and have other questions for us, be sure to tune in next week. Our CEO, Jennifer Grossman, will be back on the Atlas Society Ask, and we're going to be interviewing Brendan O'Neill from Spiked Magazine in the, in the UK. And we're going to be talking about his latest book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. Until then, thanks again, everyone. We'll see you all next time. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Lawrence. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Take care.